Welcome to Hollywood 2.0. On today's show, my guest is Ben Ha, founder and CEO of Cheeseburger Network, one of the largest humor networks that has millions of monthly visitors. And he is also the co-founder of Circa, an app that aims to reinvent the news. You know, I think um, many times the entrepreneurial hand is forced upon you. Um, if you can recognize what's happening in the marketplace and you can actually see that your customer base and the, the uh, marketplace around you is changing, you need to consistently adapt. And so for me, um, every time we changed the number of employees to go from, you know, just by myself to having an employee to having a team of small people, then 10, then 20, then 50, every time you go through that inflection point, you've got to learn how to become a different type of a CEO because the organization demands a different type of leadership. And when you stage the different types, usually people are accustomed to like early on, there's the visionary, but then as it gets big, there's people that want to really make sure they don't add too much to the company that there's kind of keeping the focus, you know, so it doesn't like go too broad. How would you categorize the different stages that you went through? I think um, you. I think you have a choice. I think that um, for me, I am your visionary marketplace uh, leadership, uh, consumer advocate type of CEO. A lot of other CEOs are very uh, management oriented, very um, internally strategic versus externally strategic, and so you know when we went from ten to twenty people, I had to start finding other managers who could run teams and. Uh, deliver the software, uh, deliver the ideas, and execute on them. I see. So there was that uh, process of not only you evolving, but also bring on the right team that would handle yeah. certain challenges that would come up as your company grows. Yeah, I think um, there's kind of a myth of the CEO as a do-it-all person, and that's really not true. I think um, some of the best qualities of, uh, of CEOs are the ones that, that recognize what they're not good at and are able to bring in other people to actually um, uh, do that job. That makes sense. And you brought up something that was interesting was it wasn't just you changing just by, de- you know, it happened to change it was that you're evolving as your environment changes, you know, to succeed. And I was wondering how you run such a user centric company was it's very adaptable. Some, you know, other entertainment companies, they have some long term game plan and they almost have to stay the course while you could iterate rapidly. Yeah, I think um, you know the nature of the content that we deal with, which is which is user-generated content, allows us uh, to have a very tighter relationship with our our users because they also uh, tend to be our suppliers. So they're all in one, and so they hold an enormous amount of sway with um, our traffic and what we do and the type of content that we get. Obviously, our editorial staff has a humongous say in what gets posted and how it's packaged and things like that. And so in many ways, you use the data and the relationships and the comments and the discussions and the testing data to actually figure out what is it that the user base truly wants because they're not a monolithic set. It's not one user and there's just a million copies of that one user. It's a thousand different shades uh, in between every user and they, they vary slightly and they're different groups of people who have different needs. So with these constant you know, changes and different clusters of users, are you surprised you know, every day or is there certain patterns you start figuring out and you get to be accustomed to like kind of the ebbs and flows of a user base? 
I think you have to have a cultural mindset that um, you will listen to your users, but you will also um, execute on the things that you believe are strategic to the company, which will eventually um, benefit the entire user base. So in many cases, we've rolled out changes where the user said, you know, I really hate this. I wish we'd, be, we'd go back. And, you know, we'd have to stick to our guns and say, no, really, I think this will be better. Uh, and in, in most cases, it's worked. In some cases, it hasn't. I see. So there's, there's a danger of asking someone exactly what they want. And it's also the danger of completely ignoring it. Sure. I, I think um, I forgot which uh, entrepreneur wrote this blog post, but um, there's that famous quote from Henry Ford that said, if you asked the consumer what they wanted, they would have told you that um, they wanted a faster horse. Well, um, we all laugh at that. But really, what's interesting is the part about faster, right? So Hen Henry Ford was able to focus on faster, but not on the horse part. And that's kind of the magic of being an entrepreneur and somebody who listens to a consumer is that you have to disregard some parts yet understand what they really want out of your company. I, I imagine when you first started, you know, the humble beginnings, obviously before you're where you're at now, did you have a lot of these friends and family that you would test on, like just get their feedback? Obviously, you have so much ways to test online, but you, among your support system, did they influence your direction? Uh, I think the support system is interesting because um, at the end of the day, you have to make the decision and you have to live with it. I think mentorship, I think having other entrepreneurs to talk to and understanding what made them successful, but not trying to copy them is really important. But sometimes you see, um, what is it, a cargo cult, you know, phenomenon in various business where someone's like that, you know, entrepreneur wore a hat, you know, you wear a cool hat, I'm going to wear that hat. Or there's certain things that have nothing to do with the success. And sure, you start seeing to take that on. Color, right. Yeah, uh, what? Steve Jobs wore that black turtleneck. So. Exactly, that they think that was completely connected to it. Have you noticed a cargo cult mentality in the world of startups? I think so. I think a lot of people um, try to emulate Steve Jobs. He was one of a kind, and also he was a man who was always in conflict with himself. Um, part of the decision that I'm trying to make here is I do want a successful business, and I want a wonderful business for our, uh, our customers, but I also want to be myself. I am not Steve Jobs. I, I don't desire to have that kind of conflict and craziness in my life. I'd like something that is something that, that I can love and enjoy and, and grow old with. I see. I, I think, yeah, Steve Jobs is kind of like, he's kind of like a superhero or a folk legend. So ah. there's that element to it that everybody wants to be him. But it's, it's almost like it's impossible because he's not even human at this point. <laughs> right. I think we've clearly deified him. And that, that's actually what he wanted from us. That makes sense. And speaking of, you know, mentors, um, who are your mentors, you know, like that fill in different worlds? Like who are the main ones with you right now? So right now, um, I actually look a lot to my board of advisors uh, um, and board, I'm sorry, board of directors uh, who are actually investors in the company, but who really genuinely have the best interest of our company in mind. And so I've got a local gentleman here named Greg Gottesman who works out of Madrona, um, who has been super helpful in recruiting and executive recruiting and helps us really focus on the important things. Um, I've got Brad Feld, who is an investor out of uh, Foundry Group in, Madr uh, in um, Boulder, and he's been a great coach and a person who helps me see the long-term value and vision of what we are trying to do here. And I also have a CEO coach in New York who I visit every time I'm there, and he's part therapist, part advocate <laughs> for me as CEO. Yeah. So those are those, that's part of uh, your team of Avengers. You know, you could call on them. They all have their own special power. That's right. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And, and I kind of go to, go to them for different things. 
I see. And uh, what was the process of selecting them as your team? Was it as, as they invested? You're like, all right, they're part. Of the, you respect them, so you want them to be a part of it. Or uh, how was like this initial? Did you fill them out first to make sure they were right? Yeah, I did. Um, and and one of the biggest benefits that we had was that when we were uh, small, um, we were we were a profitable company before we decided to take on investment money. Uh, from venture capitalists. So when we're a profitable company, we could say no. So we had a choice of investors that we would take on, and we really wanted to get the right long-term vision-focused people who were entrepreneur-centric and entrepreneur-friendly while keeping us accountable um, to our dreams and our mission. That makes sense. And as you move you know, towards the future, you know, everybody's focused on mobile. I was wondering, do you have started to uh, lay out a kind of a overall strategy how to like, you know, you know, work with that all these opportunities are opening up. Yeah, and for, for us, mobile is a very, very important part of our business, um, precisely because so much of entertainment is moving to mobile. So much of short-form entertainment is moving to phones in particular, and so much of video consumption is moving to tablets. And so um, we're seeing a fragmentation of how consumption behaviors occur, whereas in the past, you only had a few places where you could actually get your entertainment, whether it was radio, television, print, or movie theaters. Um, now, when you have an iPad and you could be using it on the beach, you could be using it in your bedroom, and everything can change depending on the context of where you're consuming the content. And so we really have to think about how, how can we understand our consumers and what is it that they're trying to do with our content and how do we fulfill those needs? And I know it's kind of a random question, but you know sometimes you always, always imagine like there's like these trend hunters or like what are the, what are the kids doing these days? Are you actively doing market research just to gauge, you know, the, the, the young people that are using it or new markets that you haven't really approached, just kind of seeing what changes are taking place in their lifestyle and culture? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, um, I'm not really looking to the cool kids as much. Um, what I'm really looking for is mainstream adoption. I'm, I'm not in the business of chase, chasing what's cool. Obviously, you know, the internet culture, memes, and funny humor business really has to do with what's popular today. But I have a team of people whose job is to do that. What I'm really looking at is six months from now, two years from now, what is the consumer behavior going to be like? Um, and that means I can point my business towards that direction and say, let's go really deep on tablets or let's go really deep on phones and let's reallocate resources to make sure we can do that. So so it's making sure that it's almost like that golf swing. You just know how it's going to arch, eventually how it's going to land versus just kind of shooting where you think it's going to be. You know. And what you said about the cool kids that you're trying to avoid, I think that's some dangers that some people will feel they're successful was they got that little bubble they live in and they're getting that little bit of traction, but in reality, in the mainstream, they're not really they're not really going to be adopted. Yeah, and I think for some businesses that's totally cool because that's what they that's what their brand is and that's what their identity is that they really want to be cool on the cutting edge. For Cheeseburger, you know, our brand is really about the mainstream. It's really about um, the mainstream American audience and people who want to entertain themselves for a few minutes a day. And it's really not about, you know, wearing the badge on the outside, but really feeling good about it on the inside that you got a few minutes of laughter. So I see what you're saying. So it's ha you're trying to gear it to the broad appeal, you know, you know, and uh, there is that broad appeal and you could obviously segment them. But overall, this is mainstream. This is everything from like a 10 year old to your grandmother could get into it. Yeah, and, and what we're doing is we're creating different channels and different streams of content so that different people can get uh, what they're really um, um, looking for so that they can customize that stream. Because as we all know on the internet, no one really knows 
um, who you are when you're consuming this content. So if you're a guy and you love chick flicks, that's okay because you're doing it in the privacy of your home. And so we want to be able to fulfill, um, regardless of social pressure or stereotypes, the types of content that you would really enjoy and laugh at. I see. So, the, so what would you enjoy? And also, I guess there's identity that you connect to the content you share. It's almost you see like the success of was it upward the where they're tapping into inspirational messages and there's organizing that and people beyond just what they want to read. It's also what they want other people to associate with themselves. You know, so almost your your art is almost like they're telling a joke or they're sharing a joke with a friend and they could be sharing across a social network. And I think that's a, a self um, selection involved and and personalization involved in that process. And that's what the internet really excels at is that we get to know people from an individual basis and allow them to actually find content streams that really matter for them. That makes sense. There's a, this complete personalization. What do you think about, you know, certain, you know, businesses like YouTube, Machinima, where they have obviously the user generated content and they're also moving into like, you know, developing or somehow making it part of their ecosystem and they're bringing more expensively to produced, you know, forms of entertainment. Um, what do you think about that kind of uh, evolution? I think that's what naturally happens when more money starts to pour into a specific medium. I think as more dollars from advertising and sponsorship and uh, user purchases are driving uh, consumption on the internet, they're going to continue to use that money to go after bigger areas. And, and usually that means television and, and movies. And so when people are getting into higher production costs and higher production value, what they're really saying is, we know that the marketplace right now um, prioritizes that stuff and we're going to go after that. And now we, that we have, we have the resources, um, we're going to start to invest in it. No, it makes perfect sense. You even see BuzzFeed starting to, I think, take on longer form uh, articles too. Yeah, I think what we're really going to see is internet isn't a uh, competitor to uh, movies or TV or magazine. It's a format for everything. And that means all digital, all media will become digital and will have to live in the internet, whether it's a pipe as the internet or the end destination is the web and apps and things like that. So when every analog format of content is moving online, that means who's going to innovate, who's going to test this stuff out? Is it the um, people who are innovative in previous formats? Usually that's not the case. It's usually the up-and-comers and the new kids who understand the native advantages of using this technology. And speaking of the new kids, I'm sure there's a lot of misconceptions about your business. What are the, some of the biggest misconceptions you have people like will come to you about memes? What is the thing that's just like eye-rolling? You're like, oh my God, you should know better, but you hear repeatedly. Yeah, you know, we get a lot of advertisers who want to create a meme, and we, we really push them away from that because I think a forced meme is very easy to identify. Uh, we also get a real misconception of our demographic. Um, people think that we're, you know, a, a, a site for young kids, and that's really not the case. Um, so much of our audience is actually mainstream. They do skew a little bit younger, um, but they're 18 to 35. They're really just people who want to have a few minutes of laughter who um, are going to primarily turn to the Internet for that. So, so I see what you're saying is that there is this thought that's like, I'm going to make a viral video or I'm going to make a meme and the advertisers feel that there's like a certain, you know, system in place that you could just do that, but it's, it's not possible to guarantee it, right? Yeah, and in many cases, people confuse virality with what we call channel distribution. So if you're Rhett and Link and you have a you know, 2 million uh, subscriber base on YouTube and you publish a video that's really super high quality, which they often do, then they'll get a lot of people who are interested in, in watching that video. And people say, oh, look, it went viral. 
when it really didn't. They have a great channel distribution because they have a huge fan base. Virality really is about taking something out of its original context and twisting it into something new. And that message is really hard to control. So brands and advertisers who want things to go viral, what they're really saying is, I want a lot for a little bit of money, which has been the case with business and humanity all along. And since you have these very powerful pipes that reach a lot of people, if there is a success, you know, you're able to get a lot of eyeballs. It's not based on some like, it's not like some magic trick that you did. It's over time you sustain, you build a, you know, build that foundation. And I guess they don't want to see everything involved. They want to feel like there's that, there's a shortcut to it. Yeah. And everybody's looking for that shortcut. And every time a new um, word of mouth or organic um, me mechanism comes up to actually help spread content, which has been kind of the MO of the internet, everybody starts looking for the shortcut. But at the end of the day, the people who are able to listen to their audience, continue to produce and, and curate and publish great content day after day are the ones that are actually going to build these channels for distribution. Yeah, and I think it's a challenge for distribution. And also, too, like I've noticed when it comes to like crowdfunding that the most successful campaigns are from people who usually have had a very like you know close relationship with a fan base, whether it's through a web series or web comic, and they're able to raise a lot more money than somebody who overnight even if they were a big actor maybe you know nine years ago in tv that they try to come to, to a platform to raise crowdfund money and they're not able to succeed because they don't have that relationship in place that's right and i think it's really emphasizing that direct connection um it's really about taking the middleman out of the equation and allowing the audience to feel like they're connected to the celebrity directly and those who can actually emulate that um, are going to have a, hard, a, a much better time being successful online by activating the passion and energy of that audience. And when it talk, comes to community management, what are some of your tips, you know, based on your experience? So for, for me, I think um, being really personal and being really super upfront and honest about what they're trying to do is helpful because people can see through that kind of wall and that barrier. Um, if you're trying to hustle and sell something, that might work for a little bit, but you're actually going to monetize that audience and, and they're going to feel like they were used. And so a genuine relationship, a deep personal revealing of yourself is really difficult and really scary but that seems to really energize the audience because they can feel a deep connection with you. I see. And it's it almost like what I guess you could look at MySpace is that they were very, you know, they had a strong, you know, amount of supporters and audience. And they had like a little, they had music, they had this whole like thing that worked, but it almost seemed like they, it was almost short term thinking that it didn't, you know, it, because experience felt like it got worse and worse. And then like Facebook was, I guess, like a, like a cleaner, easier to navigate, you know, social network. Yeah, and, and in many ways, Facebook's you know biggest problem is that it's very sanitized and very machine-like. It's a very much a controlled experience. But then the opposite was true for MySpace, which was chaotic, and, and you were unable to understand why what was going on, and the user experience was pretty terrible. And um, do you have a favorite social network, if you could only use one? Uh, I'm a big fan of Path, uh, which is the uh, online, uh, I'm sorry, mobile uh, uh, social network. Mm -hmm. To me, it feels very private. It feels like a village versus a city. Um, and I have real deep, meaningful relationships with, the with my friends who are on there. So that's like the, so that'd be the one that you, you couldn't like get rid of on your phone. So if you get only one, it would be path. That's right. That's a, it's a good endorsement. Um, I was, I was, I was seeing like, you know, it was, you have these various businesses and I saw that you're getting involved in, uh, the newspaper business. So you have, you see these different systems and how they work. Do you think Hollywood could learn from how you run your various tech businesses? 
You know, Hollywood is an amazing business, and having gone through um, some business deals with them, you know, I've come to have much more respect for what they do, especially for the frontline folks who produce the content, who create the content. Um, I don't know what I can teach them about their business. What I know is that um, the need to test ideas, the need to um, listen to the audience and create new business models and disregard how you are making in the money in the past so you can actually make money in the future is super important to startups. And that's, a, that's a, an experience that should serve them handy as they continue to become more like startups. And when we refer to more like startups, it's like you, uh, startups you see like um, you know Netflix and Amazon producing original content, and even um, Amazon and Netflix. I think they're also using a lot of analytics to support the decisions. Like I think Netflix is deciding what to produce based on all sorts of factors, you know, on their on their users. And then uh, with Amazon, they tested out a bunch of pilots um, for TV shows, and then they yeah. saw what was shared the most. Yeah. And so I think you will have different content production values based on what is the metric that you are measuring. I think Netflix has a very different measurement than Amazon. Amazon is looking for that tactical incremental approach, whereas Netflix is looking for large, huge blockbuster wins based on big bets. And Amazon is willing, not willing to do, take the same approach. And do you have any predictions based on, uh, you know, seeing that the tech influence is affecting Hollywood? Is there any predictions just on how content is going to be monetized? Absolutely. In fact, um, we've had multiple conversations with movie producers and distributors about how to prime the Internet for shareable marketing, for content marketing prior to the release of the film or the TV show. That they're looking for the Internet as a way to amplify the fan base even before a fan base actually exists. And we're, we're super happy to be involved in that conversation. And when you say it's extensions, would, you, would that fall under, I guess, the umbrella of the term transmedia storytelling? It's really about... Um, enabling the audience to feel like they have a sense of ownership in the success of the film, that they feel like they're participating in something that's actually bigger than who they are. And so, you know, I would say about three years ago, um, if a movie studio came to us and said, we'd like to promote a film and we'll say, great, you know, if you want to do it organically, you know, let's get stills from the movie. Let's get some animated GIFs. Let's get something that's actually iconic that we can actually prime the pump with. They'll say, oh, that's copyrighted material. I can't give that to you. Here's an ad you can run. And now what producers and filmmakers are doing, they're coming to us and saying, what part of my movie is really um, useful in social sharing and in those environments? And how can I get you more content? How can I get you access to more of my film so that it'll increase the amount of demand for the film? I they see. They're see... trying to generate demand before the project's even... Like, how far in advance? Is it the film's not even made yet or the film's made and then they're starting that dialogue with you? Uh, usually they approach us when the film's about to wrap shooting, when they have assets that they can show us because then we can help them figure out, okay, this is the type of material that you want to highlight and pull out. You know, it used to be three years ago that people saw any portion of the movie being shared online as um, a competitor to the actual movie itself. And now people are seeing that, um, like product promotion, giving away small bits and pieces of the storyline and the content, kind of like a trailer, is a huge value add. And that there are ways of building a trailer-like experience and, and awareness of the movie by giving away, you know, little tiny bits of content like a 15-second animated GIF or a bunch of stills from the movie that are actually really iconic and, and you know, remixable. 
Uh, that makes sense. I, I spoke to um, a fellow who worked at uh, BitTorrent on this podcast, and he was saying that there is all sorts of content that they want to give away on BitTorrent, and then in exchange they get emails or they get some type of personal information. So just any way that you know they use that content to just kind of build out the community around it uh, w- way before the film is actually released. Yeah, I, I think that's the, you know, how are we be, being scrappy about our marketing? How are we not spending, you know, millions of dollars marketing something just to see if it's going to work? How do we be more incremental and how do we be more reactive and how do we be more innovative about marketing this? That makes sense. And you always see uh, with regards to advertising online, there's, you know, all sorts of very, you know, inexpensive ways to do it. And then you also see like branded entertainment and it seems like it's take it's it's starting to become more popular. Is that trend of branded entertainment uh, working along your vision for your businesses, or is, is it kind of like that connection to it? Absolutely, we like content um, that is user centric. We love the idea that brands and advertisers and marketers are embracing the idea of adding value as part of the advertising and marketing process. Um, and in fact, we're actually working with more advertising agencies and marketers um, who find huge amounts of value in being a piece of content, not just advertising. It's a, it's an interesting thing. You have various disciplines that haven't really sat at the table in the same way. Is this a long-term thing that's going to develop even bigger? Because it, it almost feels like you have like traditional TV models where you have commercial breaks and radio. But do you think, because you see, well, at least with Red Bull, they have like their own enter- entertainment empire in a sense. Do you think more brands are going to be like Red Bull? You know, I think that's an interesting commitment. Um, I don't think that strategy is appropriate for everybody. But you're, you're actually seeing an increase in the number of chief content officers. Um, that the idea of a brand having somebody who is at the executive level responsible for the content that the brand produces seems to be becoming more and more uh, important. And we like that. Uh, We love the idea of having more Red Bulls of the world who are out there empowering content creators to create content and that being a part of their branded experience. I think that is fantastic. Um, Red Bull is certainly an innovator and they got there through the extreme sports world. Uh, we are actually seeing more and more marketers who want to become um, organic in their reach and get their message across about their brand to millions of people by providing entertainment. And they realize that having entertainment more than advertising alone gives them space directly front and center instead of on the side. Right? It's not an advertising experience that you have to stop and maybe you know take your attention away from. It's an advertising experience that gets your attention and makes you focus on it. And how do you want to be part of this movement, like with all your different channels? For me, it's really about aligning the needs of our user base with the aligning the needs of our advertising customers. If I can get advertisers to underwrite the production of excellent content and cons- and bring that to consumers where they couldn't have gotten it before, then everybody wins. The brand wins, the producer of the content wins, um, the audience wins, because we're aligning everybody's incentive to how can we produce excellent content that carries a narrative and the feeling of the brand and the message of the brand to a receptive audience who wants to socially amplify that. And you seem very close to those movements. I mean, you even look at, uh, what's it, Grumpy Cat, and obviously it's a complete outlier. You can't, it's not predictable that you're going to have this super celebrity, but it almost feels that you could just tap into this movement and see exactly what's happening. So there's real analytics behind the brand entertainment. And that's sometimes the the challenge is it's hard to create a metric around that versus other forms of advertising. 
Yeah, I think um, we're going to get better and better at that. I think you start out by saying individual pieces of content have this kind of performance and metric and, and things like that. And then you go there and start to prove that the entire system has merit. But right now we're in the let's make sure that we can go one step at a time phase. And moving on to uh, our last couple of questions, um, which journalists do you feel are at the cutting edge of journalism? And I mean, not just the fact that they're creating great work, it's just the way that they're taking advantage of all these new opportunities to tell stories. Um, I think actually Andy Carvin, who was covering the um, Arab Spring, was doing a phenomenal job. Um, I actually think that the Huffington Post live blog page uh, during that time was very super innovative. Um, and basically they, they ran a newsroom of five people covering an entire side of the world uh, where things were coming through social media, they were vetting it and things like that. Um, one of my uh, startups that I'm involved with called Circa just hired away the social media editor from Reuters. Um, and and he was, I think, I don't can't remember uh, an example of um, a social media editor becoming an editor-in-chief of a news organization. And I think you're going to see more and more of that. All right. And then, um, you know, the last thing, you know, is is speaking of just journalism and you know different you know writings that may inspire you what um what blogs or books have you really got into and you felt that you you learned from them on a consistent basis or that you've read recently and you felt that it was really good uh, effect on how you see the world you know i think in news um and journalism i tend to snack um, it's interesting because we have the rise of aggregators like, uh, for example, I rely on TechMeme a lot, um, and I use um, things like Pocket, which is a personal aggregator, right? I can actually take any news article and put it in Pocket and read it later. Those kinds of tools are enormous opportunities for news organizations, and I think there's kind of this, inter this quiet, um, under-the-surface war among journalists and aggregators and, and other places, and what we're doing is we're really missing out on the op opportunity because it's very clear that consumers like aggregation, that consumers enjoy um, being, being able to pick from the best of all the worlds. I see. It's giving more opportunities to uh, amplify the reach of content by making it almost more slippery. It's easier to move around versus trying to protect and hold off of it pollinating across the web. Yeah, it, it's, it's one of the cases where as an entrepreneur, don't fight the rising tide, you're going to lose. You might as well figure out how to go along with it. No, that makes uh, that makes perfect sense. You know, you 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 can fight all you want, but you know, at the end of the day, unless you deliver something that has nostalgic vi value like vinyl, there's no one who's going to care after like your your time has come. That's right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. This is Peter Katz. You can uh, reach me at katzfilms at gmail.com. It's K-A-T-Z. 